welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Kelly. Gavin Kelly. Oh, brilliant entry. And you know what? A pretty decent Scottish accent. I was going for French. So Thank now, hey, much. at least we at least we know you do a decent Scottish accent. Yeah, well, there you go. Very good. All right. How are you today, good sir? I'm doing I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? I'm great. Can't complain. We're talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, from probably my all-time favorite film series, from probably my all-time favorite movie character. Uh, so <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited that we're finally doing this. For the first time, uh, today's episode. So we'll probably be doing at least one of these a year. Uh, so it'll last us, you know, the next uh, twenty-five to thirty years. Uh-huh. Uh, but anywho, let's get to it. What's new with you, good sir? Uh, well, uh, I'm just uh, wrapping up a, a pretty hefty week here at work. Okay. We're submitting our final budget for the next year, so that means from here on out, uh, we should just be focusing on year-end performances. Uh, we have one tonight from 7 p.m. Of course, people listening to this on the day it's released, you'd have to take a time machine back mm-hmm. a few days to go to that performance. Yeah. So, so it, it's not coasting mode, but it's flow mode. Actually, technically, they would have to take a time machine and go a week and a few days back because this episode, we're oh. recording out of order today. We're actually doing back to backs. <laughs> and this one's going to be coming out uh, later than the next one we're recording. So uh, sorry to confuse you all. Now you need a time machine to go back and restart this episode. And figure out Come what the heck we're talking this about way, my friend yes time machine <laughs> anywho so okay cool busy busy yeah uh same here i mean nothing new here same old same old just doing my thing uh let's see here martial arts movie news uh i mean with the i uh, obviously this last week or nine days ago at the time of this recording uh we did have a passing in uh, the martial arts world, Sensei. Oh, Fumio Demura. Yeah, uh, that was very sad. Uh, definitely all over social media this week. He was a very inspirational individual, uh, legend in karate. He was a, you know, all Japan champion in Kumite and then, uh, you know, came over to America, I want to say in the 70s, and then, you know, was very influential in the martial arts scene here. He was one of the main inspirations for Mr. Miyagi in the sense of Mm -hmm. not only did he help uh, double and train Pat Morita, Pat Morita based a lot of his character and Mm -hmm. mannerisms and speech patterns off of Sensei uh, Demura. And he, you know, he's even talked about that in like speeches he's given and stuff. uh, Pat Morita, that is, Uh, excuse me, he had talked about it. May he rest in peace as well. So uh, yeah, just very sad. I mean, he had been in kind of, uh, I had to say poor health because, I mean, he, you know, was such a, a strong karateka his whole life, but he had been in, uh, how would you say it, faltering health the last few years, you know, had some uh, yeah. health issues. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get to meet him at Dragon Fest. Maybe, God, it was that four or five years ago now. I was going to ask about yeah, the, that your was, photo with him. That was 2018. So, yeah, almost five years ago now. Uh, yeah, and then, so there's a great documentary that, it's bounced mm-hmm. around from Netflix and other ones. I'm not sure if it's streaming anything right now. It's called The Real Mr. Miyagi, uh, which is all about him and his impact he's had on Hollywood and different actors. And everyone just held him in s- such high regard. And it's it's very sad to see uh, the legends, you know, passing on. But, hey, yeah. that's what happens. And, you know, it's a... Uh... Once you understand, like, uh, like the so-called Mister, the real Miyagi, and you understand his full impact, I mean, it's going to live on for. I mean, I, I think when we were talking, we said like perhaps he's one of the one of the great martial art influences of the last fifty years, or masters of the last fifty years. His his legacy, thanks to film, thanks to martial arts film, is going to be able to live on for centuries. At least a century is fair enough to say. And he was another one of those gentlemen that had a huge influence on martial arts competitions in a sense, because Mm -hmm. from what I recall from the documentary and stuff, he was 
very big on. He started doing a lot of the stage performances uh, at, uh, I think it was the the Deer Park, uh, like amusement park in LA that used to be there. It was like a Japanese style kind of amusement park. It was like a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. And they used to do a lot of performances there. It's no longer there, but they talk about it in the documentary. And he used to do these stage performances where it was, you know, pre-choreographed fights and stuff. And that kind of had a, a big influence on a lot of martial arts groups and the way they would do their demos and performances from that point forward. I mean, kind of like how June Re, uh was very big on like one of the guys that first started first started doing katas to music, right? Like musical katas. So these these gentlemen had a huge influence uh, outside of just being instructors, but kind of the way they revolutionized certain aspects of training or performance, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so that's definitely some sadder news uh, in terms of announcements of any new projects or anything. Nothing that I can specifically think of. I've obviously been a little preoccupied, but uh, any... Well, you know, when you say obviously, it's obvious to the people who know you. Yeah. You're what you've been working on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, can't really think of anything else. Uh, anything? You got anything else? No, no, okay. not really. I mean, like, I, I think you, you, we, we both been a little preoccupied, but we, uh, we love making time for the films we're watching and and talking about them. So I think when we, when, when you and I are shifting gears away from, from our tasks at hand, we are fully embedded in in what we're what our topic is for the week. So we're we're not collecting as much uh, data as maybe we would on other weeks, but. Um, yeah, correct, Amundo. And plus, I've pretty much been uh, off of social media for the last couple of weeks. I will be for another week or two. Uh, so that also keeps me out of the loop sometimes on things. Yeah. So if I haven't been getting back to anybody, I apologize. But I've, I, I'll go on there just to do stuff for the podcast, pretty much. And that's it. So like, if you've sent me a bunch of messages in a row, I odds are I probably didn't even read them because. Yes. <laughs> So, listeners, please slide into AJ's DMs. (laughs) (laughs) But you're going to have to wait a couple weeks till I get back to you. Uh, He's going to leave you not on red, but leave you unread. All righty. So let's let's get into quotes. You have a quote for me today, good sir? I do indeed. It's on another page. You're going to hear my book turn. Okay. That was a page turning. All right. Turn the page. I'm going to read it without any intonation. On the road again. Here we go. You know what's true? When something looks too good to be true, then it's not true. You want the accent? Uh, Highlander? No. Okay. So no. that was what I, I, I see. I see why you picked that yeah, one, but no. Yeah. You know what's true? When something looks too good to be true, then it's not true. Oh, Rising Sun. Yes. There we go. You know, it's funny. It's like I knew it was a Sean Connery quote, yes. but for some reason it wasn't until you gave – and you you do a good Sean Connery. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, we've because most people's Sean Connery is a caricature, no, not to mention most people's Sean Connery is actually just an impersonation of Daryl Hammond's Sean Connery from <laughs> the Jeopardy skits from Saturday Night Live. Like that's yes. what mine is. I'll 100% admit it. Like, yeah, that's – the. but you, you do a very, uh, very good Sean Connery, so – well, thank you very much. I, yeah, but yes, Rising Sun. I, I, I did. I did watch uh, a lot of Sean Connery films at an early age, including The Man Who Would Be King. Oh, probably too many times with Michael Caine. With Michael Caine, yes, uh, excellent. Yeah, no, Sean Connery was obviously very influential uh, in my childhood, specifically because of the film we're talking about today and the whole series. So, should we get into it? Let's get it on. All righty. Today, <laughs> we are talking about the 1967 Lewis Gilbert directed James Bond film, You Only Live Twice, starring the one and only Sean Connery as James Bond. We've also got Akiko Wakabayashi as Aki, Miyahama as Kissy Suzuki, Tetsuro Tamba as Tiger Tanaka, Tero Shimada as Mr. Osato, and of course, we've got Donald Pleasance as Blofeld. So, mm. let's talk a little bit why we picked this. Now, we've been talking about doing a James Bond film for really, you know, a year and a half, two years maybe, 
And the James Bond films were very influential for me growing up. And the main reason we decided to do this one is, uh, or release it on this day that we are, is twofold. So first of all, You Only Live Twice, definitely worthy of being on the Martial Arts Mania podcast because it has, all the James Bond films have fight scenes and so forth. But this one has that little extra bit of martial arts uh, in it. But also, the day this is released, May 10th, would have been my father's 75th birthday. And the James Bond series was something that we shared together. He introduced it to me at a uh, pretty young age. Uh, Not an inappropriately young age, but I started, I had pretty much seen all of the Bond movies uh, by the time I finished third grade or so. Wow. Yeah, so uh, (laughs) we'll, we'll get more into the reason why, but... Yeah, and so for newer listeners that don't know, my my father passed away about a year and a half ago now from uh, a terminal brain disease called progressive supernuclear palsy. So very tough battle with that. So uh, the more awareness we can raise for it, the better. It is. Uh, it was commonly, for many years, was commonly misdiagnosed as Parkinson's, and in you know the last decade or so, it's definitely got a lot more exposure. Uh, you know, the doctors being more informed about it. Uh, so people can be diagnosed properly. There's still no medicine for it whatsoever. So it's not like Parkinson's now where you can live, uh, sometimes a relatively comfortable or normal life for a long period of time. Unfortunately, none of the medicine for Parkinson's works for it. Uh, my father was actually part of the very first clinical trials at UC San Francisco. So it's, it's, it's still in the early stages, even though, you know, this disease that they've known about since the 1950s, technically, I think, uh, it's, there's just still not much they can do about it. So hopefully the more exposure we give to it, uh, it is unfortunately the disease that Dudley Moore passed away from. Uh, he was one of the first big ca- uh, cases of it. Like they actually did a whole 2020 special on him in the early 90s early Mm -hmm. 2000s. uh, And that was a really sad one because, you know, he was a piano player and obviously couldn't play the piano anymore uh, because like Parkinson's, you know, it it attacks the brain in a way where movement is, you struggle with movement, speech, eating, things like that. So uh, Linda Ronstadt was also misdiagnosed for years with Parkinson's and they discovered Mm -hmm. she actually has PSP, progressive supernuclear palsy. So yeah, we've been wanting to do a James Bond episode and Quincelli enough, this will be released on May 10th, 2023, what would have been my dad's 75th birthday. Well, I, I'm really happy we're, we're, we're able to talk about this film in particular and, and honor your father in this way and your relationship with him. Um, speaking of PSP, mm-hmm. there is an organization that is sort of, uh, well, sort of leading the the charge and and helping research. What what is that organization? Do so you there's mind a there's a few. So uh, Cure PSP is one of the main ones. I'm going to actually real quick just so I can give people the proper handles and everything. I'm going to pull them up on social media. So uh, we've got Cure PSP. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm getting the proper. Yeah. So on Instagram, Cure PSP is uh, just. Literally, as it sounds, Cure, P-S-P underscore. So uh, they're a nonprofit organization to raise awareness, build community, improve care, and to find a cure for PSP. Uh, And then that's the main one. Uh, Let me see if uh, there's also another one that I follow and, you know, tag stuff is Team P-S-P-A. And that's what they are under social media. And so P-S-P-A aims to improve the lives of everyone affected by uh, P-S-P and CBD while funding research to find a cure. So hashtag Team P-S-P-A. So those are the two main ones, Team P-S-P-A and uh, Cure P-S-P. Well, uh, thank you for for sharing those details and, and, you know, um, and, and if anybody else, obviously, you know, you can always look into donating or helping with uh, hospice as well. Right. So my father was on hospice for the last year of his life uh, and they were, you know, were beyond grateful for everything that they were able to do uh, to make his life more comfortable. Because, you know, it's it's a misconception. A lot of people think, oh, you're on hospice, you're dying tomorrow, which, I mean, in some cases it is that extreme. But he, uh, my father chose to go on uh, a hospice much earlier simply because yeah, they, there was no there was no more help that 
going to the hospital or doctors could do. And so it was more like, hey, let's just live a comfortable life. You know, they mm-hmm. they were li- they lived up in the mountains and, the, you know, the closest hospital anyway was, was for them was an hour and a half away. So it was just a better quality of life that way. So well, again, yeah. Thank you very of much. Of course, yeah. And so anybody has any questions, they can reach out. But James Bond. So... I sent you a video. Did you watch it? Yes, I did. Okay. So what we're going to do right now is I will edit in the trailer I sent Gavin. (laughs) And it is a trailer for the VHS pack, the VHS packs, I should say, that I got as a kid. And so each tape still had this trailer on it. So you'd have to see it as you were watching them. And so right now is where I will insert that. And we'll be back with you in a couple of minutes. Looking for a little peace and quiet? Didn't think so. You have a nasty habit of surviving. Brace yourself. Shaken. 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 But not stirred. Oh, that's a stirred, not shaken. That was right. She's just coming, sir. I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Okay, so very exciting, pumps you up. Yes, you don't have the visuals, but the nice part is you you can see why that trailer would pump you up so much. Can you not? Absolutely. So, and I mean, it's it's it was, so that was for the nineteen eighty. That would no that so that one was all of them as you can see it was Sean yeah, Connery. It was for like the VC VHS release. So what happened was. GoldenEye comes out in 1995, right? It came out in November of 95. We had had the longest hiatus for James Bond. It had been like over six years because License to Kill came out in 89. Mm -hmm. We won't go too deep into it, but there was kind of some legal issues, uh, ownership issues. And that's why it took so long for the new Bond film to come out. And technically, Timothy Dalton was still contracted to be Bond. And by that point, he's like, no, I'm good. They had originally wanted Pierce Brosnan back in the 80s to take over for Roger Moore. He was contractually obligated to Remington Steele. The funny part is Remington Steele's ratings were tanking and they were going to cancel the show. But when it was announced that Pierce Brosnan was going to be the new Bond, the ratings went up and the show stayed and then he couldn't get out of the show. And then that's when they went with Timothy Dalton. They actually wanted Timothy Dalton in the early 70s, but he felt he was too young, you know, to take over for Sean Connery. He was only Mm -hmm. like 22 at the time, was mostly a Shakespearean actor. And I could go on and on with all the trivia details. So I'm a huge James Bond fan. I have been since I was a kid. And this is the main reason why. So my father was a, a big James Bond fan, loved the James Bond films. He had started recording them off of TV in the <laughs> early 80s, like on when mm-hmm. they would do like the movie marathons. And I believe it was even TBS all the way back then. And through my childhood, TBS always did every summer like the James Bond marathon where for like two weeks, they would just show the James Bond movies all day. Uh, or maybe it was like a week, the Bond super week. I forget what they called it. But so 
we've had the longest hiatus, GoldenEye's coming out, and what they did was they started re-releasing all the films on VHS as like a pack. And so that trailer I just played, technically on YouTube, it says it's the UK one, but it was pretty much the exact same one we had, uh, was like the trailer for these packs. So we had the Sean Connery pack. That's what we had as far as like the actual official James Bond uh, movies. My dad bought us the the Sean Connery pack and we watched those on repeat. Like every weekend we were probably watching at least one. We'd watch it during lunch Mm -hmm. because it was just an easy tape to put on. We love the James Bond movies. But then my dad also had a bunch he had taped off a TV over the years. So like when we'd go up to my family, our family cabin, we'd watch those up there, you know, the Roger Moore ones, this and that. Then we have like the, you know, the week long TBS marathon. So this is, you know, 1995, uh, so let's see here. I started like oh, 92 and then 93 and then 94. So yeah, by like 1995, like third grade, I had seen all the James Bond movies up to that point. So, uh, then GoldenEye so, comes out and yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, I remember going to GoldenEye because I had been waiting for a very long time. Right. So what was that like? And you got to go with your father? No, unfortunately no. not. So here's the deal. My dad didn't, uh, the smell of popcorn made him kind of nauseous. We, we, I only went to a select few movies with my dad growing up. In fact, I can tell you, we went and saw Cool Runnings twice, and he <laughs> took me to go see The Saint for my 10th birthday oh, okay. because he, we, we were big fans of the radio show, yep. and he was a fan of the original show starring Roger Moore, coincidentally enough. So, but otherwise, my, my dad was not a big moviegoer. So I did not go see Goldeneye. I had to wait till it came out on VHS. But I do remember... Uh, my neighbor uh, that we lived next door to another Italian family growing up, the Rattos, uh, Frank went to go see it and gave it very high reviews. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till this comes out on VHS and I could go watch it. I can tell you this though. I did see all the rest of them in theaters starting with Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, but I did have to wait till VHS. So roundabout way, You Only Live Twice was one of my favorites for obvious reasons. And we're going to get into the plot and so forth. But- it has ninjas. <laughs> yes, it has. So it does have ninjas. Yes. It has gr- multiple training sequences with yes. them. Normally in a film of this caliber or this type, you would expect one short glimpse training sequence and that's it. No, we got we get two somewhat extended sequences. Yeah, it's it, ninjas, martial arts action on top of just the regular fight scenes mm-hmm. and the the early Bond films, pre, I'd say, okay, all the Sean Connery ones through George Lazenby, and then obviously short Sean Connery coming back for Diamonds Are Forever. So the original run of James Bond films, this was Sean Connery's last, in a sense. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't even really want to do this one. Then, you know, he left. Then they, they offered him at the time, I believe it was $2 million to come back after Honor Majesty's Secret Service didn't perform as well and George Lazenby left. Uh, which was unheard of at that time. But uh, the original run of films, so uh, we've got Dr. No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, then Honor, Majesty, Secret Service, then Diamonds Are Forever, those first seven, the fight scenes were groundbreaking. Like, no, nobody was doing fights like they did. In, in mm-hmm. fact they were ahead of even what was going on in Hong Kong or Asia or anywhere else due to the way they were filming them. Very hard-hitting, realistic, crispy yeah. punches and choreography and the impact and the realism. And so not only do we get that in this film, we also get it combined with proper martial arts techniques being performed a lot of the time by proper martial artists. The other yes. unique factor is... This film is exclusively set in Asia. I mean, apart from, you know, breakaway scenes of like cabinet members of their government and the United States and Russia and stuff. But otherwise, it's exclusively it, set in pretty much Japan, but, you know, a little bit in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. that was always fascinating to me. And just the Japanese culture. And unlike most Bond films where he's jumping around from continent to continent. Well, you know, what's funny is I, I love time capsules. And uh, so often I, I love watching the old like film noir movies and try to guess the streets because so often they cut out the, the, the street names 
in American films. And that does bug me sometimes because I, I, I want to know where, where it's shot. Uh, what I loved about this film, particularly when you saw the exterior of Hong Kong, probably Kowloon side. And uh, although I could be wrong on that, I'm not as familiar with uh, Hong Kong and Kowloon side, but I'm terrible. Also, So here's the deal. I have been to Hong Kong a couple dozen times. Visa runs when I was living in mainland China. I love Hong Kong. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I'm terrible with the geography. Like there's guys, you know, Sifu Alex at the, the the Kung Fu Genius podcast, he knows Hong Kong like the back of his hand. Me, yeah. I know my metro stations. I know where to get off. I know which lines. <laughs> yes. Like I, I know... Well, you know, like someone can be like, I'm like, oh yeah, my Muay Thai gym's in Mongkok and I know how to get there. <laughs> but if you gave me like a map without any like streets on it, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Well, what, what, what I, what, well, first off, my memory of Hong Kong is there's always construction. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that was the eighties for you. Yeah, well, there's always still, some scaffolding yeah. up somewhere. Uh, but then I loved when I cut to Japan and the neon signs in Tokyo were fantastic because this was in an era where the neon signs were almost predominantly all, at least the ones in this film, I think were predominantly all in Japanese, not in Romanji, which are American or, sorry, English uh, letters, uh, you know, like Toshiba. You won't see, to right. you would see everything written in uh, in Japanese. And it was, it just, it was beautiful, fantastic. And it's nice to see uh, a glimpse of Japan shot what is probably ultimately at that point in time, one of the highest, uh, just there's a lot of money that goes into, oh, yeah. into, into bond movies to make it look as good as possible. So you're getting, you're getting a real nice glimpse at, at what Japan looked like at that time. Right. So what we, let's get into the basic plot. Pretty much what it is, is this is the 19 late sixties. It's the, the space race, right? So, you know, space was the, in terms of historical context, maybe you know better than I, uh, was like the next frontier, right? Like who could conquer space first? Mm -hmm. And so everybody's shooting rockets up into space, you know, going to the moon, stuff like that. And pretty much government spaceships are disappearing. They're, they're being like, they're literally just disappearing. And the Americans think it's the Russians. The Russians think it's the Americans. And it's going to bring us on the brink of a new world war. At the same time, James Bond is vacationing in Hong Kong and gets murdered. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Ends up. No, it's just a setup. They're faking his death uh, so that he can pretty much work more undercover and have less people worried about like whether or not James Bond is on their tail type thing. So they're, they fake his death to try to give him some, I don't know, what would you more freedom to investigate or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind I of, I always wonder how yeah. people don't know who he is. And then right. the people who do know who he is, why are you, why are you sitting down across from a table with him? Yeah. So either which way, that's what's going on at the beginning. And then, you know, once it's established that James Bond faked his death, uh, they immediately have him investigate what's going on because the British, of course, are the only ones that realize, hey, there's some trickery afoul, right? And they've picked up on their satellites that, uh, you know, the uh, the actual enemy rocket that's stealing the other rockets uh, went down near Singapore, <laughs> as they say, or, you know, it, or it, it, our satellite in Singapore picked it up going down in the Sea of Japan. And they're like, well, okay, well, it's not the Japanese government. So they send uh, Bond to Japan to investigate what's going on, see if they can figure out where these rockets are landing, who's behind it, what government, et cetera, et cetera. So Bond immediately goes to Japan. But don't worry, he can get around no problem because he took a <laughs> uh, class uh, at uh, Oxford. Yes, uh, he I was took, number I, one in Oxford, I, I right? Took a, I took a first in Oriental Languages. Uh, like, cause it's that easy, right? Money Penny yeah. throws him uh, a book that it says instant Japanese. And he says, you forget, I took a first in Oriental languages at Oxford. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, all as, Asian as languages if, are the same. Yeah. As if the book itself, uh, could have helped him anyway. It's, yeah. You know, it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's as a kid, you're like, oh, wow. But then as someone that's lived <laughs> in Asia for years and stuff, you're like, I it, it wouldn't have even mattered had I brought my little travel book of Mandarin one I had from high school because it would have done me zero. Uh, I know. Yeah. Well, as an adult, I guess we should be even more impressed. Yeah. Now exactly. that we've been into, well, now that we've been to Asia, wow, he was first. 
Yep. So he goes to Japan. He's got to meet up with uh, his uh, uh, the, the Japanese counterparts, right? Like the Japanese Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get our first introduction to Tokyo that you're talking about with all the neon signs. It's so beautiful. And the interesting part is every release from what I've read, aside from the VHS one I had as a kid as part of that pack, there's no subtitles for the Japanese. But that VHS one did have it. So I I watched it so many times, I still know what they're saying. Really? Uh, yeah, I still remember. Like, uh, oh, like in, fun. in the bathhouse scene, I know that Tiger says, don't forget about your master or don't forget about, you know, your uh, boss pretty much. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, so I still remember like what they're saying. So, you know, in a roundabout way, he's got to use code words and he goes to a sumo match. So... Did you do any research on these two particular sumo? I'm assuming you did. And the one backstage, because I think they are all famous. Yes. The one backstage was the 50th Yokozuna. So the Yokozuna is the highest level of uh, sumo. Uh, uh, Basically, as a sumo wrestler, your ranking goes up and down, up and down. And the only way you can ever maintain... Uh, title is once you make it to the highest level, which is Yokozuna. And once you're there, you're it, 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 you have to jump through a few hoops to get there. You never fall off. You never, I, I don't believe anybody ever drops from Yokozuna back down to Ozeki. But, you know, if you go on a losing streak or what have you, uh, usually you have to take a break or retire, usually. And again, from my recollection of some of my famous fighters, they, they tend to, retire at a good point in their career but also once they see that they can pass the the torch so yes i did some research uh the gentleman who spoke to him in english was uh uh so that he was the 50th and i sada no sada no yama okay and the then the fighters in the ring or in the in the sumo wrestlers uh, included the 53rd Yokozuna, who was promoted to the top rank in 1963. So at this point in time that this is being filmed, he was the, the you know, the top dog. Oh, wow. Okay. That is Masa Katsu Kato Zakura. Okay. Uh, apparently the Dance Academy has come into the outer office and are walking by and waving. Oh, okay. That's nice. At the time that I'm trying to, I don't have a problem pronouncing Japanese names. I have a problem reading my own handwriting Oh sometimes. my God. Isn't that funny? Like, so <laughs> I, when, especially when you're feverishly writing something and you go back to read it and you're like, what did I write? Like, well, you it, know, the yeah. thing is I'm writing when I'm too excited. I'm writing right. like these notes. But anyway, long story short, those were the two key wrestlers. Uh, I don't have a... Uh, I didn't have a, am I, did I get that right? It looks so, oh, and I think he was going against Fuji Nishiki, uh, Takemitsu. So I think the, the fighters in the, uh, in, in the, that he was observing was Fuji Nishiki against Koto Zakura. And then the gentleman he spoke to was Sada no Yama. Well, there we go. So, so yes, yeah. I did research and I, and I, I, I looked at, uh, at, at I was trying to figure out what martial arts they each engaged in because obviously the 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 gentleman that I I was a huge fan of Chiono Fuji uh, was known to do a little bit of aikido or so I was told he did aikido oh. uh, but it doesn't it just says what their number one technique is one is pushing one is pulling one likes to go to the left one likes to go to the right what have you yeah so th- this is where he meets his first uh contact within the Japanese Secret Service, uh, Aki, who's played by uh, Akiko Wakabayashi, and Mm -hmm. she'll become his first love interest. You know, it's a James Bond movie. It's an early James Bond movie. Uh, And we should mention, obviously, I I grew up loving this series. I still love it. I hold it very dear to me. Yes, there are a lot of outdated elements to it in terms of some misogynistic elements, you mm-hmm. know, maybe some sexist type elements. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it's also a product of its time. And, you yeah. know, if we decide to cancel out everything that was a product of its time or, you know, things change. And luckily we've evolved to the current state of the James Bond films where Daniel Craig is, you know, a, was a more modern interpretation of the character and the relationships he had with women were more evolved. And that's the way it should be. But it doesn't mean we, we, we can't yeah, yeah. appreciate the classics and, you know. Well, we, 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 we learn, we learn the, the ideas of, of life is we're, 
we're learning from the past and yeah. we're growing into the future. I like that. Um, I would say that there there is a particular reason why Timothy Dalton's James Bond speaks to me because I think he was a major his tenure was a major catalyst for the shifting from uh, shifting away from maybe the misogyny to the to the more although the, you could say George Lazenby was also uh, a note to that as well yeah. because you know so I mean it I think the series has always been cutting edge and while we might look back in time and say oh wow this is like this is you know not acceptable today but at the time it, it was probably actually ahead of its time particularly on race relations although this movie you might say well how is this good for race relations but oh, we'll get to that but. yeah it, it's 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 complicated is, is what life is. And, and James Bond is one of the areas that kind of points out where the complications are. Yeah. Excellent point. And yeah, very good uh, note about the Timothy Dalton era. And especially with his films, he, he brought, he was an, like a night and day difference from the Roger Moore era in the sense of how dark and serious he was and how driven he was. Uh, you know, he didn't have time for that nonsense almost, but back to, you only live twice. So, uh, he meets his contact and she takes him uh, to see Henderson, uh, who is there is a British contact there. It's been there for 20 something years, who is the one that believes he knows exactly who the rocket belongs to. No, no, it's not the Russians. No, it's definitely not the Japanese. Uh, and but he's assassinated before he can tell them. And the interesting thing to know, the main reason I brought it up is Henderson is played by the actor Charles Gray who would go on to play Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever, two movies later. So mm-hmm. Blofeld, uh, up until Diamonds Are Forever, we hadn't seen his face. Blofeld was always just the hand with the cat and, you know, what was later spoofed in uh, Inspector Gadget and stuff like that. So this was the first film where we got to actually see Blofeld's face as played by Donald Pleasance. Now, in the next film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, it was very confusing for viewers uh, because technically these films were based uh, or filmed out of order. Originally, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was actually supposed to be filmed next because it was the next part of the series. But production costs for finding like the snowy locations and so forth. That's why they decided to do You Only Live Twice first. So when they did do Honor Majesty's Secret Service, half of that plot is the fact that James Bond and Blofeld have never met because James mm-hmm. Bond infiltrates his uh, compound, his like quote unquote medical compound for curing allergies, uh, pretending to be someone else. And so it really is gets kind of confusing. They go back to Diamonds Are Forever, almost like Honor Majesty's Secret Service had it happened. But coincidentally enough, they have this actor, Charles Gray, who plays this random character of Henderson in You Only Live Twice, then playing Blofeld in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. And then not to digress too much, but then because of other legal issues with the book and characters and so forth and production companies, later on the Roger Moore era, they couldn't even use Blofeld. So that's why you only (laughs) ever see, once again, like it was before, him from behind with the cat in a wheelchair in For Your Eyes Only, and he never calls him Blofeld because they legally weren't allowed to. Uh, In fact, Blofeld wouldn't pop back up again until the Daniel Craig era as played by... uh, Oh, can't think of his name right now. Django Unchained, two-time Academy Award-winning actor, German. Oh, I, yes. Uh, I think by now everyone knows who you're referring to. Yeah, but I should know his name. Uh, do, 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 Christoph Waltz. Very good. There we go. Okay, so. I knew it all along. Yes. So, he gets assassinated. Bond takes out the assassin, puts on his outfit, uh, gets driven back to the bad guy's lair, pretending to be this guy. Uh, who appears to be a sumo as well. He's like, uh, uh, yes, he, he appears. That's what I thought at first is that's what I thought. And even when you Google sumo in, uh, in, uh, you only live twice. This is the first scene that pops up on video, but I believe allegedly I couldn't find the confirmation, but I, I, you know, I believe that that is the rocks grandfather. Well, that's what that's what a lot of people were claiming. I think that's unfortunately not true unless this gentleman was not Japanese because the rock is he, not I, no, Japanese. No, I don't think he I don't think he is. Oh, interesting. 
Wow, I've never read that. But anywho, the only reason why I'm going kind of scene by scene right here is because this is another significant setup for our first fight scene. So once it's revealed that Bond has taken the place of the assassin, the the two of them have a fight. And it's a very hard-hitting fight. This guy's big and strong. There's great punches, kicks, martial arts used, throws, a katana. Bond at one point is using furniture to hit this guy mm-hmm. and just... I've always been fascinated with fight scenes ever since I was a kid. And that's kind of how I got into martial arts movies, obviously. But in the James Bond films were some of my first where I got to see this really like hard hitting action and the impact and the stunts and the falls was just so ahead of its time. And yes, I'm talking Sean Connery era, George Lazenby, Sean Connery era again. And then unfortunately during the Roger Moore era, it faltered a little bit. The The style changed. There was still some moments of kind of neat choreography, but Roger Moore through, unfortunately, Timothy Dalton. Actually, the fight scenes in the Timothy Dalton films are terrible. Uh, and that's nothing against him. It's just that was the style at the time, like canon yeah, films, I, ninja choreography type thing. But then GoldenEye was a great reintroduction to the hard-hitting fight scenes that we knew from the early days of Bond. But... Yeah, so Bond has this great fight scene, eventually knocks this guy out. He escapes uh, with the help of Aki again. Uh, And this time, he is introduced to the leader of the Japanese Secret Service, or at least his main point of contact, Tiger uh, Tanaka, who is played by Tetsuro Tamba, but uh, was dubbed by Robert Rieti. And uh, Tiger Tanaka is also the name, the alleged name of Frank Dukes' secret ninja instructor. Oh, <laughs> and so that's why facts. A lot of, we're 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 a, unveiling a lot of, pe- a lot of facts. Yeah, today, a lot of folks. people they like to pull that one out. Like, wait a minute, Tiger Tanaka. That was the name of the you know trying to we poke holes in his story, which we're not here to do today. I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that this is the character that a lot of people claim he took the name from. Well, uh, <laughs> I I will say the. The actor who plays Tiger Tanaka, and I am, you just mentioned his name, but I have, I have all my notes. I have like multi-screens going here. So, uh, was in, um, a very early Hideo Gosha film, uh, Three Banded Samurai, which I, I'm a big fan of. I remember, uh, seeing that film and I, I'm, have listeners of this show will know I am a big fan of. Hideo Gosha film. So uh, it was nice to see uh, an actor from the Chambara Gosha genre in this film playing essentially head of Secret Service, but also head of maybe a ninja like or. or... Well, that's like his own kind of group. So by this point, we don't really need to go scene by scene anymore. So, you know, Bond teams up with Tiger and his crew. He does undercover work, you know, ends up having to seduce one of the uh, Spectre agents, although it ends up she knows he, who he is, etc. But Tiger eventually brings Bond in to train him for their final mission at his ninja compound. So, uh, yeah, he has a whole compound where they're training ninja commanders. So, because Bond even asks, like, yeah, well, if we're going to infiltrate, we'll need commandos. He's like, I have better than commandos. I have ninjas and we, we <laughs> it cuts away to the them feverishly training in their karate geese and this was definitely my favorite part of the movie and as you said we get multiple sequences of them training the first one is just all the martial artist training and supposedly uh, a lot of the the kar- karatekas that are on screen are Masoyama black belts, Kyokushin black belts. And that's why they look so good. And then on top of that, the technical advisor for the martial arts was Don Drager. And in terms of martial arts research, pioneering uh, martial arts as a academic subject, if you will, in the West, Don Drager was absolutely essential. So he was an American that started... uh, judo at a young age in the what would be the early 20th century so at that time still jiu-jitsu or judo and then like a lot of you know world war ii uh vets you know i believe he was in the marines and then being stationed in asia he was training martial arts all over including in mainland china and then he spent the rest of his life documenting researching and doing martial arts so his main martial art was judo uh and you know, competing in judo and representing America and this and that, but he also was heavily involved with uh, uh, 
karate. I know, I believe he might've trained under John Blooming in Kyokushin. Don't quote me on that though. Uh, and then he also had done Chinese martial arts. He wrote like one of the first books on sea lot in Indonesia. So mm -hmm. he would go like every year to a different country, learn martial arts. Eventually on one of their last like expeditions, he and the whole team were apparently poisoned. And then, yeah, he died shortly thereafter. It's a very interesting story, but as far as like Japanese martial arts go, that was like his forte. And he was the technical advisor for this film, which I think definitely would have helped because, you know, at that time there was definitely, you're going to have your cultural differences. You're going to have like, how do we interpret this for Western audiences or, you know, how do we make sure we don't misinterpret it? So I'm sure having him around was actually essential just to, you know, have somebody there that can be the go between the, the in-between, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, but not only that, being that Bond is going to be infiltrating uh, the secret volcano lair in the end. So it is discovered that uh, Blofeld is indeed stealing the rockets for the Chinese government, we discover. So at this time, this would have been communist China in the late 60s. So really what China was up to, we, you know, maybe didn't even know that much publicly. But uh, it's revealed that... Blofeld is working with the Chinese. Uh, in fact, the interesting part is that one of the uh, Chinese agents that uh, deals with uh, Blofeld, oh, and I forgot to write down his name. I thought it was on here, uh, is, uh, do, 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 do. Oh, what the heck? Well, one of them is uh, Bert Kwok from uh, the Pink Panther yes. films, but that's not who I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about, uh, where the heck is he? There is another actor from uh, the Pink Panther films, uh, Revenge of the Pink Panther. Uh, he plays a martial arts expert, uh, but- I'm talking I'm, about, sorry, I was talking about Rick Young. So Rick okay. Young, who would go on to be later in The Transporter, but also uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Uh, so he was the one I was thinking of. So yeah, a couple of character actors there. So yeah, ends up Blofeld is stealing the rockets for the Chinese government because the Chinese government wants Russia and America to go to war, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they know where the rockets are going down, but they don't know exactly. James Bond has investigated the area and that's where we get the great helicopter sequence. We have a helicopter battle uh, yeah. with little Nelly, his little tiny helicopter, which still, for the most part, stands the test of time. Some of the, as we've already talked about the fight scenes, but a lot of the stunt work from the Bond films was so groundbreaking. Yeah, there's the occasional cheesy green screen. Yeah, okay, like, you know, but car chase sequences, motorcycle chase sequences, in this case, helicopter work, like the stuff that they did was just so phenomenal. I can only imagine going to the movies at that time and seeing that and being like, whoa, nowadays people might laugh a little bit, but I'm still blown away when I watch it. And of course the music, oh man, you know, the music just makes the, the James Bond theme on top of that. Well, yeah, whenever, when they slip in the James Bond theme or when they slip in, um, you the you only live twice, like, uh, like Overture or Mel Medley, right. I just like, it's it's what we always talk about how the music just heightens the audience experience and I don't know just there's something really special about the Bond series you're never asleep but they know how to really wake you up even further. This is true, and uh, the interesting part is on Prime right now. Uh, there's a whole documentary. It's called The Sound of Double O Seven. It's about the music of James Bond, the history of it because of how influential it was. So not just the score, people have to remember like each James Bond theme, maybe not so much in modern times, but back in the day was, would like be a hit. It'd be on the radio. And there's a whole documentary on the history of the music and the impact. And it's very emotional. Like even Jessica and I were watching it and like you get choked up and like she got teary eyed a couple of times just because it's so moving and the music is so powerful. Uh, whether it's to accentuate the action, to accentuate the drama, because a lot of the times, like you said, they'll do like an overture version of the themes. Some of the themes are more fast-tempoed and paced. Like, you know, you've got uh, Live and Let Die, which became mm -hmm. a huge hit too. But that one, da -da -da, da -da -da, da -da, you know, that's more of like a rock and roll type one. Whereas this one, You Only Live Twice, the theme by, sung by Nancy Sinatra is just a beautiful 
ballad. Just, I love it. I lo- you know, and it was good enough to be sampled for Millennium. Remember that song from the late 90s? Was that Robbie Coltrane? Or I, I forget. But uh, anywho, so yeah, it's decided they know where the rockets are going down, but they don't know where exactly. So they're going to train James Bond for a couple days in ninja tactics. But not only that, they're going to make him a Japanese. Mm. And so this is the sequence Gavin kind of alluded to earlier in the sense of how this film would have maybe not helped cultural relationships because they decide to put Bond through a cosmetic operation to make him look Japanese. Yeah, I mean, again, so... Um, I feel like the James Bond series has always been um, good when it comes to race relations from the perspective of who James Bond works with. And I mean, I think even throughout like who James Bond's, who the Bond girls are, it's always been somewhat controversial for its time. But at, at the same time, it's also like 1967 ahead of its time but also 1967 we're going to now do yellow face uh from but, the 1920s and it's interesting because it's not and i don't want to say that it's not that bad it's not like yellow face from like a fu manchu movie all they no. do is they give sean connery like a black a jet black like wig and here's the deal he was already wearing a toupee at that time anyway so in real life so they give him like a, a different toupee, which looks more like, I don't know, as if he is Asian. And then they, they, they give him like, what else do they do exactly? They, they kind of change his eyebrows a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they, they dye his eyebrows. Yeah, they, they dye his I eyebrows. I mean, they dye everything. And then they, of course, they're dying the chest hair. And he's like, what's, what's the line? Shouldn't we only be working on the things that are seen? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. So really, mostly all they do is dye his hair jet black and his eyebrows jet black. They don't give him like prosthetic eyes. Yeah, no, they don't do anything like that. It's just the idea that, oh yeah, now he'll pass as Japanese. That's obviously the ignorance of this whole sequence. But, and they also let him know he's going to have to uh, have a cover and be married to a local girl, one of their agents. Now, by this time, his previous love interest of Aki has been murdered in her sleep because they were trying to assassinate Bond with the poison on the string and it landed in her mouth instead. So uh, my my dad always liked to point out how James Bond got married twice in the Bond series. Mm. Once for reals and then once not for reals. And I was like, what? James Bond got married? And then, you know, obviously seeing it in this. So this would be the fake marriage, right? So, and that's when the character of uh, Kissy Suzuki comes in, played by Mia Hama, uh, and she then becomes obviously his new love interest and his fake wife. Uh, and as they tell her, she has a face like a pig, which she ends up being very beautiful, but Bond's worried yes. he's going to be fake married to a woman that looks like a pig. Now, I'm not sure. Is this an expression in Japanese? I don't think so, no. Yeah, so I don't know what they were getting at. So through <laughs> their efforts, Bond and uh, Kissy find out where the lair is, which volcano it is. Uh, Bond stays behind. She goes to get Tiger and the ninjas so that they can infiltrate and try to stop Blofeld from uh, launching the last rocket, which is out to steal America's rocket they just launched because America's announced that if they get another rocket stolen, they'll go to war with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. The ninja commandos come in to save the day. And that's where we get our big, huge finale in the big, giant volcano base that they actually built on Pinewood Studios in the UK. Apparently it was massive. You could see it from like miles away or kilometers away. But uh, yeah, so we get this great finale with machine guns, explosions, but also ninja tactics, ninja stars, katanas, everything in between. All the stuff we got to see in the training sequences earlier, uh, you know, spears, you name it. They've got it in there. Uh, eventually, they obviously, in true James Bond fashion, they stop the plan from coming to fruition. But of course, Blofeld does manage to escape, and that's pretty much the movie in a nutshell. There you go. I mean, uh, one one aspect we haven't spoken about yet is the writer, Roald Dahl. Exactly. So, so anybody that grew up in the eighties or nineties is going to know 
Roald Dahl simply because his books, I don't know if they still are part of the curriculum in elementary school, but I don't know if they are, but I, I know that they're, they're still culturally significant. You see, I mean, they're, the films have been made from, you know, James, James and the Giants, Peach, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's always the big friendly giant, right? That was yeah. the big one that always popped into my head. Uh, but also for me, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was yes. uh, a very like when I'm, my mom had us watching that movie and she really liked that one. And that was one that he uh, also wrote the screenplay for. Well, he's he's a war. He's a war veteran, as I understand it. Uh, and it's funny because I, I took a I took a writing class, a comic. It was comic spirit with uh, Ray Waters, who uh, used to have movie nights over at his place. And that's when I first watched uh, Big Trouble or no uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo. OK, uh, so he was a big fan of uh martial art film so we, we would talk but also comedy and so for him Roald Dahl had a you know had a whole series of well-respected children's author but he also had short stories that were meant for an adult audience so when ah. I say an adult audience I mean they're not kid stories there's uh but they're short fun stories but they're also uh my teacher used to point out that there was also a little bit of anger underneath uh Roald Dahl that he would sort of express through his writing. And he particularly loved uh, You Only Live Twice. He felt it was one of the best written dialogue-wise Bond movies. I don't know if I, I don't, I would have to rewatch every single one to see if that's really true. But he felt like it's edgier and play it there's a little play on words i mean even if it the even the shaken not stirred the right. guy's like stirred not shaken right and then he drinks and he goes perfect or even with the oysters well i won't be needing these yeah exactly so yeah. They're, they're like there are a lot of lines in there but that's probably where the pig face comes from there's just a lot of lines uh that might not feel like a regular bond film um or and and you know so i i think and Roald Dahl was a friend of Ian Fleming's, and that's why he asked him to write. And the funny part is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was actually based off of an Ian Fleming novel. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there uh, you go. And then Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay for that as well. So, yes, very significant there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, for me, there's a lot of nostalgia factor connected to this film. Mm-hmm. You know, watching it as a kid, loving it as a kid, ninjas, martial arts. I still think it's a great film overall. It's beautifully shot, amazing stunt and action work. Is it necessarily the strongest of the ball of the James, excuse me, the Sean Connery era? No, I mean, everyone's going to go for Goldfinger, and I love Goldfinger as well. But You Only Live Twice is one of my personal favorite James Bond films of the entire series. It floats around at number one for me. But I also understand that that is highly nostalgic base but then again you know once again my my list my choice and i just absolutely love this movie and as far as i i think it's one of the best ways they kind of took a martial arts genre and incorporated it organically and it's uh, interesting a few years later especially during the uh, roger moore era they liked to capitalize on what was hot hence why his first one live and let die boom black exploitation was big at that time mm-hmm. let's capitalize on black exploitation baby Oh, boom, the kung fu movies were big. Let's ca- capitalize on kung fu movies with Man with the Golden Gun, right? And so there's martial arts stuff in there, but it also comes off a, a little hokey and stuff. And a lot of that, unfortunately, has to do with Roger Moore didn't have the same physicality that Sean Connery and George Lazenby had. He just didn't, like, when it came to the action. But he was also older. So, yeah, yeah he was older than Sean Connery uh, by two years, I think. So, I mean, he was already coming in a little bit older. But he just, he didn't have that. And maybe it had to do with the directors and the stunt choreographers at that point in his particular films, but not really because it was mostly the same people. But I don't know. Uh, But this film does a good job of just kind of having it there, being part of it, and also letting the main martial arts stuff. Yes, Sean Connery still has his great fight scenes. We talk about the one with the the sumo guy. Uh, He has, you know, a short stick fight with an assassin in the ninja compound that infiltrates and tries to kill him you know he does some more hand-to-hand stuff throughout but they also let the true martial arts experts handle like the samurai sword and mm-hmm. the other stuff right well you, you know it was what i also liked about this film are uh there's some stunt work in it that i feel like yun biao or, or samuel hung would appreciate i almost i mean being in 1967 where where james bond 
uh, jumps off and kind of lands and then jumps ah. off another platform and lands. It's very much very close to uh, what Yoon Biao would do, except Yoon Biao would land on his feet. Now this the is... question is, though, <laughs> was it Sean Connery on that last That's jump? why I said James Bond. Because that is one of the most brilliant... E- uses of a stunt double and then the yes. actor popping up so long story short during the one sequence where bond's trying to get away from some thugs he's in a a boat a dock and he's doing like falls from one uh i don't know what you would call it like one level to the next and they're like these big boxes almost with like what looks like a giant mattress in the inside and on the last one you know you see it from a distance he jumps off does like a forward fall lands on his like backside and you know, the previous ones you're like, okay, it's a stunt double, whatever it cuts. Down. So on the last one though, it does it all in one take. It's too far away to see, you know, who it'd be the James Bond jumps down, lands immediately gets up and jumps off the box and up pops Sean Connery. Uh-huh. So it's one of the most brilliant uses of switching out. It's so well timed as the, well with the actor in one take. It, when watching it, you think, wow, Sean Connery did that because no, it was way too fast. There's no way that could have been someone else, but it's the timing. I'm sure it took him a few takes. You'll have to watch the movie to get what we're talking about, but you'll know. You'll be like, wow, Sean Connery did. Wait a minute. And you obviously, if you play it slowly, you can't tell who it necessarily is, but you could tell there was enough time if Sean Connery was already down there crouched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Definitely a fun one to point out there. So yeah, th- there's many outdated elements in this film. We talked about it. There's obviously a lot of groundbreaking cultural stuff, you know, uh, authentically having everything shot in Japan and an introduction to the martial arts culture and so forth. Yes, there's the element still where they do kind of the quasi yellow face thing, which is definitely a product of its time and something that we can hopefully not have done anymore. But overall, I still love this film. I still find it highly entertaining. It's still one of my all-time favorite Bond films, if not my favorite. I highly recommend you watch it. It's on HBO Max right now. There's a, a few of them on HBO Max. Not all of them, but like maybe... They're, they're, a, good, they're a good handful. Like maybe 10. They, it's like mixed throughout uh, Connery, Roger Moore, Pierce. So definitely worth watching. And once again, for me, these films... They're close to my heart. I'll watch them when I'm happy. I'll watch them when I'm sad. It's funny. Sometimes if Jessica comes home and I'm watching a Bond movie, she'll be like, oh, are you okay? And I'll be like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm great. Because, you know, sometimes I do watch them. Oh, yeah, of if course. I'm missing my dad or something, I'll be like, all right, I'm going to put on a Bond movie. But uh, yeah, you, you got to check this one out. It's a lot of fun. And any final closing thoughts from you? No, you know, I, I think... For me, my favorite Bond film is the one that's out next in the theaters. And then after the dust of that one settles, then I go back to, I'm going to say it, Never Say Never Again. Which is, Doc- I, I love Never Say Never Again too. I love- like we both love that film. And the thing is, and once again, my dad with his James Bond trivia, he's like, <clears throat> but then there was also the unofficial James Bond movie. I'm like, there was an unofficial one? And he's like, technically there was two. I'm like, there was two? I don't know where my dad had all the time with everything else he was doing to know these random trivia facts. But he's like, yes, there was one, you know, Casino Royale, the original Casino mm-hmm. Royale, the comedy. With Peter obviously, Falk. Peter, yeah, Peter Sellers. Oh, uh, Peter Sellers, yeah, not Falk. Yeah. yeah, Peter Sellers, Woody Allen, all those guys. David Nevin, But yeah. then in the early 80s, once again, another legal contractual thing. This mm-hmm. is the same one that made them incapable of using the character of Blofeld for years due to the the actor that wrote Thunderball. Long story short, they remade Thunderball in the early 80s, 1983, I think, to be exact, with Sean Connery coming back. So once again, he came back again, even though he said he would never come back after You Only Live Twice. Then he does Diamonds Are Forever. And then he said he would never, ever come back. <laughs> and then he comes back again. And that's why his wife actually was the one that came up with the title, where she said, yeah. never say never again. And it was in reference to Sean Connery playing James Bond, but that would end up being the last time. And he still did a great job, even that age. He's playing an older James Bond. Yeah, he actually kind of maybe physically speaking, maybe did a better job than he had done in the final three films that he put together. I think there was there was a little more investment, yeah. more skin in the game from him. It's just funny because most people don't know about that movie because it's never part of any of the official releases. It's never not, part yeah. of like, you know, HBO Max having a bunch of it. It's never going to be on there because it contractually belongs to a different uh 
company or conglomerate or whatever. And it actually came out the same year yep. as Octopussy. Yes. But Octopussy did beat it in the box office. But it of did do well as well. But it's like, man, imagine getting two Bond movies in one year. I know. And then and then you and I had to wait so many years to get GoldenEye. I mean, but essentially what I'm saying is there's always this excitement to what is the next Bond. I can't wait to get to the theater to see the next Bond. And then like once the dust settles, you go back to your nostalgic favors because there's a reason why, you know, Bond films are time pieces. They're time capsules. But they're not just time capsules to the to what was happening in the world around them at that time. They're time capsules to when we as I'll say we as boys, we as probably women as well, like, like little. It's like when we're first exposed to it, who we're exposed to these films with, because they they do hold. They all hold a special place. Each one has a special place in someone's heart. Is what I'm saying. Precisely. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying, dog. I know what you're saying. So. Let's finish this up with Language Corner. I've got one because we are approaching the evening. It is good evening. Oh, perfect. All right, here we go. Uh-huh. Konbanwa. Perfect. Konbanwa, which is one I actually know. I didn't realize that was technically good evening, but it yeah. makes sense. And it's easy. It's about konbanwa. Konbanwa. Oh, konbanwa. Oh, I've been saying it wrong forever. So can you break it down the... K yeah, K O N Kon Kon Ban B A N Wa. Oh, Kon Ban Wa. Yes. Perfect. Kon Ban Wa. Kon Ban Wa. Wanshang Hao. Wanshang Hao. There we go. Good job. Okay, my man. Uh, this has been fun. We hope you all enjoy this. And yeah. I'll catch you later. Peace.